Welcome to Hire It Advisor, the Baker Tilly podcast dedicated to providing insightful guidance and leading practices for college, university, and research institution leaders and board members, experts and thought leaders in higher education finance, institutional operations, collegiate athletics and esports, health and wellness, data analytics, and more. Join our podcast host, higher education practice leader Dave Capitano for bi-weekly episodes to discuss the latest news in higher education and the impact these trends and changes have on the industry. This is where you come to learn what's really going on behind the scenes at colleges and universities across the country. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Higher Ed Advisor podcast series. My name is Dave Capitano. I'm the host of today's podcast, and I'm the firm leader for Baker Tilly's higher education practice. I'm honored to be here today with my colleague, Tim Myers, to continue our conversation around how college and universities leaders are dealing with the challenges that are existing in the current environment, particularly around running a safe and productive athletic program. Tim has a ton of experience working with colleges and universities on strategic partnerships and integrations, and his insight is extremely valuable to our team. Tim, welcome, and thank you for spending time with us today. Maybe just a couple words to our listeners on your background. Thanks so much, Dave, for including me today. I've got an interesting background in that I've been a, um, a venture capitalist and a private equity guy, but I also was the chairman of the George Mason University Board of Trustees for a couple of years, as well as the head of their endowment for about seven. So I've been kind of both on the inside and the outside of, of the higher education market, and most recently, been working with a number of institutions that have looked at uh, mergers, integrations, combinations, partnerships, uh, given the current financial times that we're in. I appreciate that insight, Tim. And I think it's going to help us a lot when we talk about particular issues with regards to integrations and combinations, particularly around the sports program, which I know you're heavily uh, involved with a lot of those projects right now. So just a little bit of a recap to our listeners uh, with regards to our Higher Ed Advisor podcast series. Those that have been following us know that we have been diving deep into the concept of fiscal resiliency across uh, all our college and universities. So we have a variety of conversations with regards to the challenges around overall operations on the academic side, on the financial side, on the student wellness side, and on the athletic side. We've also had the opportunity to talk with subject matter experts in all those areas and different leaderships with regards to colleges, universities, particularly presidents and D1 athletic directors as well. So we have a variety of uh, concepts out there that if you have a chance, we certainly like you to go back and take a listen to. But today, Tim and I want to take a deeper dive into how schools can really step back and think about and evaluate their athletic programs. So, Tim, what are we seeing around how schools are using data to drive decisions in this particular area? Could you comment on that for me? Thanks, Dave. Um, I think that's a great question. And higher education really has revenues and expenses. And a lot of us spend a lot of time focused on the expenses of a a school and and athletics. Everybody looks as the athletic programs as having a high expense and, and not a lot of return. But what's missing in that, that analysis is looking at the impact that athletics have on enrollment. And enrollment, of course, in the, in the higher ed world is our revenues. And in those revenues, we really have to look at what we would do with and without a- athletics 
So what we've put together and, and recently done this for several schools as an analysis, a financial analysis, it really looks at the contribution margin of each and every team. So we look at the revenues that are brought in by those students. And when we, when we think about revenues and enrollment related revenues, we think about not only the tuition and the fees and the room and board, um, but what also that does from an out of state standpoint and on a, on a net basis. So we only care about what would happen if that student wasn't enrolled in that school, how much revenue would we lose? And we take all that for one particular team, add it up to figure out what that cost would be then for that team and create a net contribution margin for that particular athletic team. And if you do that for all your teams, and then you take an overhead allocation and allocate that among all the athletes and all your programs, you can come up with a contribution margin for that entire athletic program. So it, it provides a very interesting and, and data way to be able to figure out how each team is doing, but more importantly, what the impact is from that athletic program. Tim, could you so, talk a little bit uh, about the considerations with regards to Title IX in this concept? Yeah, so there's a lot of factors that play into um, how sports teams, athletic programs, and the rest are, are put together. And Title IX, for about the last three decades, has played a major role. And over the last several decades, what we've seen is significant enrollment growth in women on campuses overall, but also women that are involved in athletic programs. So Title IX plays a role to determine how many students can be involved on both male and female in the various programs. So Title IX needs to be looked at as it relates to how you build up additional athletic programs, how you build out your rosters, and to make sure that you meet all the, the various requirements of Title IX. That also plays into, I will say another factor is overall diversity and really finding underrepresented students and building up that underrepresenting students in your, your campuses. So Title IX is a factor, diversity is a factor, um, and when you're thinking about out-of-state students and, and how that plays into your, the diversity of your campus, that is also a factor. So, Tim, keep that thought on hold for a minute because I want to dive deeper a little bit later with regards to recruiting and retention efforts and uh, with regards to the student body. But before we do that, I know you mentioned to me on previous conversations about a book that you've been reading with uh, Jeffrey Docking, and you found it very insightful. So I thought maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's, it's fascinating. The Crisis in Higher Education is the book he's written. And it was really focused on exactly this concept of what athletic programs can add to a small liberal arts school. But I believe his views and, and the, the processes that he used can apply to both state schools, private schools, large and small. And the, and the view there is, is that you first and foremost start with an athletic program that is looking to recruit students that will graduate your institution that they're first and foremost great students and they fit into your, your overall campus. And then from a standpoint of what they can do to your, you know, add, add diversity and, and the rest of your campus. And then lastly, you know, they, they need to make sure that they are good athletes. So in most schools, the, the opposite is true. What you'll find is they first and foremost start with the win-loss column and then end up with a athletic program that may have great win-loss records, but may not have students that are focused on graduating and bringing up the academic performance of the school. The other factor that he looks at, which is all in line with that, is that as it relates to coaches, coaches are really your frontline 
recruiters and enrollment. So if you think about an overall school, having a coach that's out recruiting students, student athletes, that also that athlete has lots of friends and, and other folks that may want to come with that athlete to that school. So in many regards, that full-time coach that's out recruiting has the ability to be able to not only recruit the athlete, but that athlete's friend. So in a, in a in what we'll call a big picture standpoint, what we see a lot of times as athletic programs, when they look to cut expenses, they cut coaches, full-time coaches to part-time. Part-time means they're doing something else with their free time and not recruiting. All they're doing is coaching. So in many regards, his view, and I, and I completely agree with it, if you're going to have coaches, make sure they're full-time dedicated folks that are really focused on building the institution. Excellent. Excellent point for our readers. And I know you have some other tips for us uh, as well with regards to maybe how schools could turn around what they perceive to be a losing athletic program into something that probably has a better ROI. And I guess I, I said perceived because a lot of what you just talked about was just that. I, I think a lot of schools go into this with perception or, or pre-perceived perception about what the real ROI in the program is. And then when they dive deep into the details, they often find some ahas. But before we get there, tell the readers a little bit more about some other uh, maybe suggestions or things that you've seen where schools have been able to maximize the return on these programs. I think if you look at enrollment across the board, athletics can play a major role. We just talked about the friends of the athlete having the ability to be able to continue to grow your enrollment. But there's other more direct athletic enrollment, pep bands, cheer, trainers, managers of sports teams. And in a recent analysis that we did for several schools, what we found is those students in combination with the athletes had the impact of about 20% of the enrollment of incoming freshmen. So that, that is a fascinating analysis as you start digging in deep to think about we didn't have athletics on our campus, how would that affect enrollment? The other piece of that is, is looking at division one, division two, division three, a lot of folks believe that division three is gonna save you money. But what you also find is division one and division two are more likely if you're a state school to be able to recruit out of state students with higher paying tuition. So for public schools, this is a, could be a huge difference maker. And that out-of-state student fee will more than make up that cost for the Division II or Division I travel expenses and additional fees that you may see. It's a good conversation. So, Tim, you, you, you mentioned to me some, some programs that you saw that should be looked at as well, particular sporting programs such as maybe JV programs or a men's lacrosse team where you've seen some benefits that – Maybe some schools don't, you see when they put these sports in. So maybe could you talk a little bit about uh, some things you've seen with particular actual sports themselves? Yeah, I think the, the actual athletic teams are, are somewhat fascinating. And, and what we found, and it's once you get into the contribution margin and allocating the overhead and the rest, what you find are the teams that have the most amount of coaches per athletes are going to have your lowest contribution margin. So think basketball both men's and women's. Most basketball programs have two full-time coaches. And if you have a roster of 10 or 12 or 13 athletes, it's going to be a real, it's more than likely going to be a loser for you. Where if you have a team, let's say lacrosse, male and female, where you have the potential to have between 20 and 30 athletes on that team, and maybe one full-time coach, 
the contribution margin for those particular teams are much greater. The other interesting thing that we learned through this process is that men's teams tend to carry a higher roster than women's teams. And so you, although you may have a bigger lacrosse team in the men's side versus the women's side, it's a interesting phenomenon as it relates to how do you build rosters. The bigger the roster, the bigger the contribution margin. So Tim, in, the, in this current environment, we're seeing a lot of schools make a decision to cut programs, you know, to control overall costs that to help with the, the operations of the schools. And, you know, you cut a program, you cut, you cut your athletic department, you're cutting coaches. Let's turn that upside down. How do you look at your existing department, your athletic department, and how could you really maximize the talent that you already have on the staff? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, Dave. And I think there, this is one that we're going to see well into the future with some really creative ideas. But one that uh, we recently stumbled across, and I, and I think it's a fascinating one, is that we just talked about basketball, really not having a very good contribution margin. But one of the thoughts there is, is if you think about club sports on your campus and your club sports and whether it's a JV program or a club program, where there's a lot of players that want to continue to play basketball and other sports, where that you could take your assistant coaches, full-time assistant coaches, and have them work with those programs and also work with the head coach on recruiting players and, and athletes to your campus because you have an outstanding club program for basketball or for lacrosse or for softball. So there's a number of ways to use athletics outside of uh, the NCAA models to leverage the teams you already have in place, the executive and management teams you have already in place to create really outstanding club programs that keep your, your student population playing sports long after they graduate. Could you tell us a little bit about some modeling that you've done particularly? I know these are the, the, the things that we talked about so far came out of these projects, but dive a little deeper into the model itself and how that was designed and the concepts that allow you to, you know, get this type of information. Yeah, so Dave, the, you know, the NCA has reporting requirements from all of their institutions. And those reporting requirements have some really interesting models which show scholarships that are provided by the institution as revenue. And we look at that as not necessarily revenue. We look at that as just another way of looking at the way that sports team interacts with the NCA and the university. As we talked about uh, earlier, is that revenue really, in my opinion, is the dollars that you would lose if that student athlete wasn't at your campus. So scholarships that you give to a student really don't count because that's not revenue. That's not dollars coming into your school. So when we look at the analysis across the, the, the board, we, we look at all the elements that a school brings in to the, uh, the athletic program brings into the school which could include coaches having summer camps and other activities that create offsets to their expenses. Then we also look at all the expenses that relate to those athletic programs, including the medical costs and insurances, travel costs and the rest. And then we look at what the cost of that is by student athlete. But we also then have the ability to look at what the net contribution margin would be if you have 12 on your basketball team, that 13th player that you would add has no additional costs associated with it. The coaches are already there. The overhead's are already there. So that, that we could call that a gross contribution margin. But once we know what the contribution margin is for that team, 
we know exactly what that'll do to the bottom line. That's, that's cash that's available to pay for their academics and their room and board and the rest. So when you start looking at this on a kind of after a break-even analysis and see what that contribution margin can do to your, your bottom line, it, it's fascinating. And then as you look at all of these together and see what, what you could do if you took all of your teams and got them up to the NCA standards for Division One, Division Two, or Division Three for roster sizes, in one particular school, we found that they could add an additional 115 headcount which would in that particular case add about 2% to their enrollment because it's a relatively small school. That was a pretty major impact to their overall uh, enrollment. And then again, I like to say for every student athlete you bring on, there's 0.5 to one additional enrollment that they'll bring with them as it relates to those non-athletic related programs. Tim, this is Really interesting information, and I think it really takes us to a different level with regards to evaluating our athletic programs. And I think we're all comfortable with the fact that many of our schools brand themselves around their sports teams. We certainly see it at the D1 level, but we see it at the D2 and D3 level as well. And the passion that the student athletes have for being on the campus and being a part of that environment, not to mention the alumni and the giving that goes along with these programs. So, you know, anybody in a position where they're being challenged with regards to the current economic conditions and certainly challenging their uh, ROI and their athletic programs, it's in their best interest to, to really understand how that's affecting the overall school, the economic side of it, the student side of it, and the branding side of it. So we certainly appreciate that, that level of conversation. So Tim, I'm curious when you when you dive into this information, was there any correlation between the data that you're looking at that, and the outcome of students with regards to student success? David, it, absolutely, and that's that's a fascinating outcome, especially given what we read in the newspapers and the rest. But in several schools that I've recently completed this analysis for, what we found was the graduation rates were much higher across the board for the student athletes than they were for the campus itself, as well as they had a, we'll call it quicker graduations. So they were graduating in a shorter period of time than, than their non-athletic peers. Their GPAs, especially in the women's program, were as, as much as 25 points higher than their the non-athletic peers. So what wow. we found is that overall the athletic programs and many of the schools that we've looked at have brought up the actual outcomes for those schools on average significantly. Outstanding. I did not, I was not aware of that. That is, that is very interesting. Are there critics out there that will challenge these statistics? Yeah, Dave, I think there's lots of critics out there. And, and what you also find too, is the athletic programs that we've talked about a little bit earlier, um, also have the ability to recruit in underrepresented groups, which, you know, create a much better environment, a more diverse environment for students across the board. We also found that those students also performed higher than their peers within the schools. And in many ways, if you're trying to match what you have in your community, as far as diversity, that will also attract other folks of, of color and, and uh, different type of diversity. We've also seen that play out somewhat as well in the disabled. And we've worked with one, one school that had a disabled basketball team. And that created some really strong feelings among the community, 
but also disabled that were also very, very interested in that school. So I think you can use your athletics in, in multiple ways. But in that particular regard, given the amount of tension that these athletes have on them from academic success, I think it, it can also be contagious with other students in their campus. So Tim, we're all familiar with some of our, I, I guess I'll call more popular sports, football, basketball, maybe lacrosse, but most schools have varsity rosters of 18, 19 different sports out there at all different levels. But I'm curious, is there anything new on the horizon? Is there any particular sport outside, I'll say the top three or five popular ones that is gaining some traction? Yeah, there, there's two in particular, Dave, that I'm, I'm paying very close attention to because they really help with meeting all the Title IX requirements. Um, both of them are really focused on women. Uh, one is the tumbling, which is coming out new as an NCAA sport uh, this year. And the other is, I call it competitive chair, but it's stunt. And both of those roster sizes can be 40, 50 students. So it's a huge impact on potential enrollment. But also when we go back to adding men's sports, which we, we talked about, minutes ago about the fact that they tend to have higher rosters than their, their female counterparts in the same athletic teams gives you the ability to add additional men's teams over time to continue to grow your athletic program. Because as we go back, remember, we have one overhead group, your, your athletic director and all the overhead. As you add additional students, your contribution margin of those additional student athletes are net positive. So the more programs you can have with the bigger rosters, the more positive your athletic program can be. Tim, as you're building out your, your roster of sports teams, what does deferred maintenance and the infrastructure costs play a role with regards to that decision process? Dave, I think that's that's one of the harder of the questions to get answered. But I, what I will say is that, you know, if you're if you're looking at building a swimming program and you don't have a pool, that's probably not at the top of your list. Mm -hmm. If you have a soccer field that you're using in the fall that you could reconvert to you know, a lacrosse field for the spring, that is something that you would want to reconstitute. So I, I look at this to say the actual sports teams that you add really have to play into the infrastructure you have ready at hand. My view um, as it relates to the cost that you need to invest to get a sports program started, really start with a coach a year in advance because you have to recruit those students in advance of, of having that sports team come together. And then it's the operating costs of whatever field you have available. That said, I think what we found is a number of institutions have repurposed land and repurpose fields that could be beneficial in the long-term, especially the urban campuses, where you might find that you're better off moving your baseball field to a satellite campus where you have cheaper land and repurposing that baseball field that's in the urban campus into something that might be able to be turned into a income-producing public-private partnership asset. So there's, yeah. I think there's a lot of creativity that can be put into that and the time to be thinking about that is as you're, you're creating these new roster spots and these, these new enrollment opportunities. Tim, do you think as schools continue down the journey of thinking about uh, you know, consolidation, shared services, uh, consortiums, that the concept of shared facilities among different schools could be something that schools will capitalize on? So you know, just for example, I'm a parent of a student athlete that runs indoor track and to find a well-equipped indoor track 
facility on most campuses is probably rare. But yet when you see one, you can really come together and, and share that particular facility across multiple institutions within a relatively close geography. Have you, have you seen that come up in conversations? Yeah, Dave, absolutely. But what I'll say is, is it's been less uh, utilized by universities and more by pro sports and universities. So for example, here in the Washington DC area, the Washington Wizards NBA team and the Georgetown Hoya basketball team use the same arena. Why, why build another arena when you have one that's less than five miles away that you can share? And I know that's, that's true in a number of cities. Indoor track is an extremely expensive piece of land to maintain and, and to keep heated or air conditioned and maintained. So having an indoor track field that could be shared among multiple schools to me would make a lot of sense. Um, but I have not necessarily seen that yet, but it's gonna need to happen because that is maybe one of the most expensive uh, facilities, but also has the ability to be able to use in a public-private partnership as well. And what we've seen a lot of the universities that do have those indoor track um, are able to lease that out to club sports and summer camps and, and other activities to get some revenue. But again, you're talking about you know, an acre under, under roof or more than an acre under roof, that's a very, very expensive proposition to start from scratch. So Tim, tell me a little bit about the, the COVID environment with regards to these analysis. You know, so for example, your D1 school ticket sales basically don't exist, right? You're not filling the stadiums anymore. TV rights could potentially be squeezed. Donor giving and donor alumni giving could be squeezed. So. Has this played into the short-term analysis with regards to some of these uh, projects versus the long-term analysis when we get back to normal? David, in a 2018-19 and a 2019-20 analysis that we did a comparative where the spring sports did not exist in that 20 period versus they did exist in the 19 period, we saw significant reductions in contribution margins because a lot of those international students and out-of-state students that had gone to that school did not either return for the spring or more than likely got a refund for their room and board for that period. So that room and board was a, was a, a net negative. That said, the programs were still had positive contribution margins as a whole for their athletic programs for that period. We have not done the analysis yet for this current year where you may have some schools, especially in the Northeast, that had no fall sports and may have no spring sports. That said, so long as those students are still enrolled and they haven't left, you would, you would expect it to still have a, a good contribution margin, but not near what it would have been had those students been on campus, um, but no students on campus So in those particular cases. So, you know, it's, it's the same for a athlete as it is for a non-athlete for those schools. You made an interesting comment about the geography being a driver in all this equation. So I, I could certainly see a school in Florida being able to maintain a more robust athletic program than a school in Wisconsin and, you know, in this particular, uh, you know, weather situations that we have and how a baseball season in Florida or California could be a lot longer than a baseball season, you know, in uh, Massachusetts somewhere. So I guess geography certainly plays a role in all that as well. 
So Tim, this, the conversation has been very interesting, very insightful for our readers. I do appreciate the fact that you're spending some time with us and look forward to seeing how some of these projects unfold. Uh, I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in to our Higher Ed Advisor podcast series. We look forward to more conversations with insightful people like Tim, and we ask you to continue to follow our podcast as we dive deep into the challenges that exist out there for our college and university clients. Thank you for joining us today. To receive notification when new episodes become available, please subscribe to Baker Tilly US wherever you get your podcast.